On this episode, one of cricket's finest journalists, Gaurav Kalra, stops by. There's one particular moment which I remember quite well. Tendulkar's 20 years, when he completed his 20th year as a international cricketer. He did a bunch of series of interviews, no exclusives or anything. So, in my interview, I remember asking him um, if on the first day as a test cricketer, when he was 15 years old, uh, when he walked out and he faced his first couple of deliveries, he uh, felt what all of us mortals do, which is stage fright. Did you feel like you did not belong here? You know, he was this kind of boy wonder, scores runs everywhere, every time he bats for whichever cricket, first class cricket, and here he is in Pakistan playing a test match at 16 years old. And he said, yes, very much so. I did not believe that I was... Uh, meant to be uh, playing cricket. Uh, I mean, meant to be. I was ready for that yeah. stage of cricket. Something, but I immediately remember that because I thought, oh, you know, here's this man that you would that you think is the greatest uh, batsman of this era and is always very sure and confident and secure about things that he does. Mm-hmm. But remember, there was a time when he walked out to bat and he felt that he did not belong. Yeah. It's a great life lesson, isn't it? Welcome back to a Huddle with Champions, a show on which I engage in conversation with world-class performers. I dive deep to know about their approaches, habits, philosophies and to know how they got to where they are. This week, I sat down with Gaurav Kalra. He's a veteran cricket journalist and has covered the game for almost two decades. Currently, he is a senior editor at ESPN Cricket Info and ESPN.in and prior to this was the sports editor at CNN-IBN. Over the course of his career, Gaurav has interviewed almost every big name in cricket, including Sachin Tendulkar, Sir Vivian Richards and Rahul Dravid. In this conversation, we talk about Gaurav's experience of talking to the Indian Under-19 team and the Indian women's team before they left for their respective World Cups, Gaurav's journey till now, how Test cricket can be kept alive, then what lies ahead in the Loda Committee BCCI standoff, how Sachin Tendulkar felt while playing his first test match, and much, much more. So without further ado now, listen into our conversation. Welcome to the show, Mr. Kalra. This is an honour because I've been following your journey for the past decade, decade and a half. When I, when I used to play cricket, I used to tune in to CNN IBN. It's an honour to have you. Thank you, Adil. It's uh, very nice to be here and uh, don't call me Mr. Carl, that makes me feel even older than, <laughs> than I am. So you can go with Gaurav for the rest of this conversation. But it's uh, I'm looking forward to it very much. No one's ever spoken to me at length about my own life. So let's see what comes out. And are you excited for this? Yeah, I mean, it should be it should be fun. Uh, you know, it's uh, I've enjoyed myself in this line of work for the last, uh, what, it's almost been two decades. I got my first job in sports journalism in 1997 so i'm actually more than 20 wow. years old in this line of work now yeah wow. yes a few months back you had an interaction with the under 19 team of india mm. before they left for the world cup and i think you were talking to them about how to prepare for interaction with media in that That's workshop right. and can you just take us through your experience of doing that with specific emphasis on the kind of mindset they had because it's fascinating because they won the tournament eventually. So what were they thinking about the tournament before it actually happened? 
well to give you some context yeah you know then i had done a similar exercise with the indian women's cricket team before they had left for the world cup this was on uh, i have uh, a couple of very good friends who run this uh, great organization called go sports uh, which basically is into athlete uh, takes care of athletes provides for them and all of that and uh, they largely work with olympic athletes but they work with the bcci on this uh, Uh, on this aspect now uh, the idea behind the interaction with the women's team initially was to prepare them for uh, what could come their way in terms of media um, you know how must they, how how they can tackle the media what are the challenges of dealing with the media what sort of questions they should expect how they should respond to them what should their body language be what should their thrust be how they must ex- deal with situations etc that carried on uh, to the idea that, that uh, must have gone well that's mm-hmm. the reason i got asked again yeah. and uh, by the same group uh, go sports and uh, then we did one for the indian uh, under 19 team now you have to remember that it was a very specific mandate the indian under 19 team has a great support staff mm-hmm. around it uh, yes we all talk about rahul and rahul is of course you know rahul ravid is obviously the most visible member of that support staff but they have very sensible people around them so my mandate was very uh, uh, focused on uh, helping them train for what the media might throw at them in a high profile tournament uh, it is unlike a few years ago when these tournaments would come and go and there would barely be a now uh, they would barely register now there is media interest there is uh, interest in the players there is interest in games there is so these players have a slightly higher profile so uh, it is you spend about an hour hour and a half with the boys uh, you uh, you know you take them through various uh, uh, imaginary situations you show them interviews of players uh, in uh, who you know who've uh, you've inter- have interacted with in the past you put them in uh, real life situations and you uh, get responses from them on how they would tackle a situation i mean having rahul there um, it you know your job becomes that much mm. easier because he uh, he's dealt with this all his life so yeah it was largely a role to just give them an idea a sense of uh, the challenges they face as young young players in this media environment mm-hmm. and what was the head space of the team like what kind of vibe did they give off So that's a very good question because uh, you know I remember talking to Rahul at the end of that and saying gosh this is a, a confident bunch of guys wow. you know because uh, I remember being 19 myself I'm you know I'm sure you do you were 19 many two years back two years back so <laughs> uh, I was 19 many many years ago and but just uh, as individuals uh there is an uh, a much higher sense of confidence in their own ability their uh, in their own belief as cricketers and as individuals to take on the world now maybe that is a factor of the time we live in obviously there's social media there's much greater occasion to interact with people uh, and they've also had a taste some of them had played first class cricket some of them had um got a bit of a profile already you know prithvi shaw had just done well uh in for mumbai in first class cricket shubman mm-hmm. gill had played uh, so all of these uh, factors were there but very uh, very confident but very receptive and uh, uh, the most important thing uh, was that they were a bunch of boys who were wanting to have fun together you could tell that they enjoyed being with each other and that i think came through throughout the tournament in the way they played as well that they were enjoying themselves they were they knew that they had the skills they just had to go out there with a sort of free mind and spirit 
and they did that so i felt that very much so um, when when uh, i met these guys and you also earlier spoke about your interaction with the women's team that That's right. went for the world cup you wrote a wonderful piece on it uh-huh. later on uh, talking about your experience there so i'll ask you more in depth about that a little later sure. but so all of all of the people who cover cricket or cover any sport for that matter it all started for them for the sheer love of the game that's right right and i am extremely romantic when it comes to the games we love the books we read so if i were to sort of stir the emotions in you right now of your earliest memory or what got you say following cricket and tennis to begin with all those years back so uh, odian i mean i don't think it's a very uh, you know there's no uh, there's nothing dramatic about the story you know growing up in delhi uh, in sort in the 80s uh, i uh, i was born in 1975 I, when people look at me sometimes they feel i'm older but i'm not i'm, uh, I'm 42 years old so your audience On the knows record. that uh, but yeah so uh, you know i think a sort of love for cricket and a love for sport was only natural you have to remember we grew up in a time when there was much lesser access to international sport we didn't always watch the indian team play we always didn't uh, watch um, watch a lot of high profile sport come directly into our uh, uh drawing rooms you know i remember wimbledon used to be only from the semi final stage onwards mm. we never used to get some, uh, the australian open never used to get um and obviously when you are growing up uh, in that time playing sport was very important you know because that's what you did for entertainment now i wasn't a, i wasn't a talented sportsman at all uh, you know i didn't really have too many so i didn't make it very far in my school team or things like that but i enjoyed watching sport and i had loved reading about sport uh, so i'm i uh, growing up as a teenager i le- read a lot about sport autobiographies and uh, you know books on davis cup and um, you know you name it and obviously i w- uh, you know in your growing up you were uh, i was a big follower of the indian cricket team so uh, those are uh, you know those are those little little factors combined it was always um, I, i i come from a family of uh, engineers and uh, my, you know my father was an aeronautical engineer so i come from a family of people who were not um, inclined to any i mean who weren't um, doing things that were outside of what you would call mainstream so for me to uh, get into this line of work was you know kind of a Uh, uh not a rebellion because my dad was very supportive but kind of a left field choice yeah so i mean it's an inter- it's a it's a combination of factors but most importantly because uh, you just grew up around an in atmosphere of cricket which was inevitable mm-hmm. around uh, around india and who introduced you to tennis all those years back well i now um, you know i would watch tennis uh, because i rem- the first one i remember watching properly was becker winning in 85 at wimbledon um and uh, you're quite young then now uh, yeah about 10 uh, about 10 but i remember that that match quite quite well um and uh, i as kind of i got a little older i developed a huge um well, i mean i think you can call it a crush on uh, steffi graf and, uh, and and almost uh, you know 
I don't think I'd ever seen a sports person of that sort of ability and grace and quality um and dominance so uh, tennis was uh, uh, tennis was I would say was kind of my second sport at the time and I, then I started playing tennis uh, and again discovered that I was hopeless at it but I started <laughs> playing it because you know so I am um, how old were you then when you started playing I would say about um, uh, 13 maybe 12 13 something like that but terribly i mean i discovered very quickly that <laughs> i was not going to get anywhere with it not going to dance with stephanie no, no after winning the wimbledon <laughs> no 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 i was uh, i was uh, uh, the one uh, quality about myself is I'm, uh, that i like is that i'm quite realistic i understand very quickly what i can do and cannot do and uh, so but you know i i was uh, cricket and tennis were my were my major sports growing up yeah and at what point of time did uh, covering sports appear as a career option? Because you were brought up in an environment where, uh, or at least the people you interacted with, yeah. uh, they had, so to say, mainstream careers. Yeah. So when did it become a viable option when you actually started thinking about it? Well, I started thinking about it around, uh, I'd say, standard 11. Uh, I, you know, I uh, wasn't inclined to go into a career of, enge- I, I wasn't uh, academically very inclined to that line of um, or, or, or of work. I wasn't, a, I, I wasn't going to study science and I wasn't going to study mathematics. So I was um, thinking about what could be a possible career option for me and about 11 standard I started to think about becoming a sports uh, uh, becoming a journalist not a sports journalist becoming a journalist uh, because I was um, um, I enjoyed the idea of the news I, I liked uh, I, I was curious about things uh, that were around me and I enjoyed the uh, I, and I enjoyed writing um, and uh, you know at the time writing wasn't in the same way that it is now you couldn't write a blog or you couldn't, and you know, you couldn't have a presence on the internet. You needed, if you needed to write something, it would either get into your school magazine, or you would go to a newspaper and ask them to print it, and you know, hope that they do. But um, the idea of uh, becoming a journalist first came into my mind. I'd say about eleven standards, so maybe about fifteen, sixteen years old. But it was one of the many things you wanted mm. to do at that time. And what actions did you take after this? Because you had this idea. Yeah. There were other options, I'm guessing. And after 12th, you have to pick a sort of yeah. subject to study. So that right? was, that was uh, it was quite a um, quite a fortunate thing that happened that Delhi University incre- introduced a course in uh, journalism at a bachelor at the bachelor's level at uh, Delhi College of Arts and Commerce. Now that course needed you to appear for an entrance exam, and then actually get. Uh, uh, you know get called in for an interview I think I can't remember if it, there was an interview or not but that entrance exam was the second step after they looked at where your marks were so I think we were the second batch if I'm not mistaken of uh, students that went into that uh, college so it was a BA honors in journalism it got offered um, I faced a bit of a pushback from my mother who thought that it was the wrong choice of career no one in our family had been a journalist and I come uh, from a family of cousins who are extremely successful IIT, IIMs, um, that sort of, um, um, you know, chartered accountants, very, very academically successful in that conventional right. sense of the word. Uh, so my mother wasn't very um, pleased with it, but my dad was a, um, was a you know, liberal at heart purely mm. like he wanted uh, us to pursue both me and my sister us to pursue 
careers that we chose for ourselves and he was he uh, was very happy when i got in so yeah that's how i got into journalism a mixture of uh, support by your parents and yes. the fact that the course came up the course uh, became available yeah. otherwise i would have probably studied maybe history or political science or uh, english literature and then progressed into journalism in that way because as you know i mean you don't need a degree in journalism right. to be a journalist but yeah luckily that because the advantage with that uh, course was that it gave you a lot of time to uh, actually be on the field and uh, uh explore journal uh, the craft of journalism in the sense that you can uh go out and report stories and try and get internships and work and you know um try and connect with newspapers at the time right. things like that so um the, there was a lot of time to uh discover what this line of work is about mm-hmm. yeah right and what internships are part of that course yeah there were uh, i um, i did a couple of internships uh, but the 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 last one that i did was with uh, business india television which was a news station at the right. time and uh, that uh, internship led to my first job yeah. and just to rewind a bit a few yeah. months before you graduated from college was print journalism a favorite choice or you weren't so uh, particular about it you were okay with say being in front of camera producing writing for tv so um then just thinking back to that time uh, you know obviously the first choice uh, for a lot of people for most journalists at that time was print uh, journalism only newspapers existed however at the time that i was uh, in the middle of my uh, course at in journalism uh, television had started to make an appearance uh, was starting to uh, you know bec- uh, become a option for uh, young journalists and i immediately uh gravitated towards it simply because i thought oh uh, you know this sounds like it will be um uh, in- enjoyable interesting to do and um, you know i remember business india television was one of the few i think two or three stations that were around and there was a joke go doing the rounds at the time that trespassers will be employed <laughs> that whoever whoever is seen in the vicinity will get the job but um uh, you know you kind of as is typically you try and find your um, you try and f- find someone that you can speak to there to apply for an internship uh, we found someone and i uh, applied and i worked on a um, environment program for about a year and a half uh, that was i mean the, from the internship until until i quit my uh, first job yeah so yeah so after that you uh, got into a full time job full time job so this yeah. is uh, i uh, fin- finished college in 96 uh and uh, i uh, got a job immediately after that after completing my internship so yeah it's middle of 96 i was working and what was the profile of this job how how different was it say i i know it was very different from what you're doing right now yeah but it was uh, it was a, a weekly environment program so it was a we- in magazine show on environmental issues and you were producing this no i was uh, i was an assistant producer okay. and it's a basic level job i was just learning and i was required to do uh, some stories go out and kind of film stuff and get it uh, uh, you know i mean so i i remember doing things like stories on the monuments around delhi hmm. uh, which were in a state of shambles, shambles. Uh, i remember doing something on uh, on uh air pollution levels back in 96 and uh in delhi 
uh, things like that. So did you enjoy was I doing that at that point? I, of time? I did actually. It was a good good learning experience. Several senior journalists around at the time, so you could pick up things, learn things from them. And uh, the uh, the uh, when you're in your first job, everything is new. You know, and everything is uh, uh, an opportunity, an occasion for you to learn. And then you know, obviously, you are uh, getting a salary for the first time in your life, so you have uh, uh, that attraction as well. And so, yeah, it was it was very good learning experience. It was it was television was new, like I said to you. So it was uh, uh, you know you figured you had to figure a lot of things out for yourself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And you mentioned there were people around you who were senior journalists, and they were in the field, or they had yeah. a lot of knowledge about the field. That's right. So, can you tell us about a few learnings that you acquired from them by just noticing them, how they went about things? Yeah, uh, I think uh, uh, you know. I mean, uh, it's probably not a very conscious process that oh, you know, I must learn this thing from this person and this thing from that person. What you do is you look at the environment and you see how people go about uh, doing their job and you see how things turn out in the end and what the process has been. I mean, I think one of the things about television is that people still probably don't understand is how much backroom work mm-hmm. goes into the final product that we see on air. And it's something that you don't understand till you work in it, you know, till you're working in long edits and uh, you're understanding when, you know, you've got shot a certain amount of material done some interviews and you've put it all together and you've come uh, and started to edit your piece and then the editor gives you feedback on you know listen you didn't really shoot this right and you probably needed to have shot more here I don't have options of shots and things like that so you learn uh, you learn things about your um, about your line of work so I was uh, I mean it was a great learning experience for that uh, time that I was there to just be in a observe senior people go about their work and get the opportunity yourself you know they put that was uh, the other positive about it was that you weren't always just doing uh, other people's work you were given the chance to go out yourself and film your stories so it was good yeah. and this was all all on the production side of it that's at right. that point of time that's right so yeah. so the classic talk show host question here would be now that you're also anchoring and hosting yeah that work that went into sort of you learning about production more about TV because when you're anchoring when you're hosting there's always constant talk back in your ear uh, you have to focus on five other things and then you have to put out the best show through your words yeah. so again was that something that See, helped gra- you immensely yes grounding is very important and I, I think uh, in any line of work I mean grounding is hugely important you know I um, I look at uh, my time at CNN IBN and it was the first time I had worked in a news organization in the truest sense of the word in a 24 hour cycle of that kind but uh, because I had had the learning of 10 years as a largely basically a producer you know of content of, of various kinds so I understood what it took to create that content it, uh, you know uh, every uh, project is different but the basics of it are the same uh, you know the uh, rigor that you have to apply to it is the same and the things that you learn from one are learnings you can apply to the uh, next one as well so uh, you know grounding in uh, I, I always believe that anybody in television who's just a presenter or just an anchor is uh, not uh, you know fully aware of the uh, uh, the uh, you know just all the stuff that needs to come together for uh, for a final television product to be out there. Yeah. So from being a producer for about a decade, 
you were offered a job at CNN IBI. Yeah. Uh, and that was essentially hosting anchoring producing being in charge of the sports department of sanjay right. yeah so I, I, i'm sure there's a good story behind this because <laughs> you, you got that call you're probably driving down you're just seized home no well you have to th- look back on the circumstances i've been doing sports television now for about 10 years before i got my uh, got uh, moved to cnn ibn um and uh, that was because uh, at the time uh, uh, rajdeep sadesai who was mm-hmm. the uh, editor in chief there had uh, left his job at ndtv and start, set up this organization and he was looking for a, a sports um, editor um, someone to lead his sports uh, team and i was slightly uh, bored in my uh, hmm. existing job i'd been working with uh, wisden and quintus and i'd been been doing yeah. some uh, stuff but i'd gotten slightly sort of maybe you know reached a point where i didn't really feel i was doing much uh, new stuff in any case so uh, well my wife used to work at any tv and uh, she told me that rajdeep just put in his papers and there was an email that had done the rounds uh, yeah about half um and uh, uh, so i messaged him saying that you know this so and so and so he said yeah please come over and meet me and i remember meeting him in panchil park at his house and he was wearing mickey mouse shirt shorts <laughs> the, the shorts were had mickey mouse the things on it and we had a very nice chat and um, i gave him a book that i had worked on and uh, i didn't know him at all from before he didn't know who i was and obviously i knew who he was but i hadn't met him before yeah. ever and um, i always say this he took a risk uh, you know for someone with someone who doesn't have the backdrop of uh, news and uh, doesn't have uh, wasn't a, a you know harder news journalist um, and he took the punt on um, you know straight away yeah. uh, asking me to be sports editor i was uh, 29 mm-hmm. so you know it was quite a um, uh, it was uh, i wasn't probably expecting to com- be completely in charge of the team at the time but he took that chance so yeah so what did you approach him with uh, when you messaged yeah. him i think uh, i mean i was uh, quite open in minded about that at the time i thought you know maybe this is a position uh, this is a job in which i would experience something new and use my background i wanted to continue doing sport but i knew i would use my background Uh, of having you know produced sports programming to uh, work at a new station which was different experience different pace different rhythm um and a new venture yeah with uh, you know sort of a bunch of very very mm. um uh, well uh, sort of very solid people um lots of very good journalists in their area of work and uh, it was uh, so that's that, i was quite open minded i was quite open to doing whatever uh, he thought you know would be the right uh, fit for me if he thought something would mm. be the right fit for me um and yeah so that's uh, i d- i wasn't like fixated about a, yeah. a particular designation of mm-hmm. a job mm-hmm. yeah. because even when i spoke to shreen ban last week right. even she started with cnbc that's right right when they had established that's so right. i think you also went through that same process yeah of well i mean cnbc of course was already in existence yeah, and yeah. shireen was uh, there already for many years yeah. even before cnn and ibn yeah. came into the fold i mean you know i think everyone knows the details yeah. of what happened yeah. there but uh, yeah i mean so my um, uh, introduction was it was because it was a new venture 
led by you know uh, led by india's most prominent journalist at the tele broadcast right. journalist at, at the time mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, someone who was willing to kind of um take, the take a take a risk yeah. with a person who didn't have the same background maybe he didn't have a choice there mm-hmm. weren't too many options and he yeah. looked at a few people and they didn't quite come so whatever it is it it worked out quite well have you had a conversation with uh, mr saradesai about this after all these years about what went into him uh, selecting not, you not, not really i think i mean mostly you know it's a, a very cordial and good relationship mm-hmm. uh, even after you know i moved on he was at at cnn yeah. ipn at the time that i had left but no i mean uh, in the uh, you know i don't think ajip is the kind who reminisces <laughs> too much and yeah. we just kind of uh, maybe you know it worked out okay for him as well yeah. he got someone that uh, um, uh, you know handled a role for him so yeah, mm, it's yeah. not i'm not uh, i haven't really had much of a chat with him about yeah. that yeah. and then and from producing for 10 years yeah. you were suddenly thrust into the television environment yeah. which is Uh, progressing and going at a breakneck speed even yeah. today. Yeah. So what that transition for you to be constantly say a call away from because if there's a breaking news you being sports editor you want to be called first for literally anything that happens in the sporting world. Yeah. Which was uh, uh, which was an eye opener in the you know the the uh, one thing that you have to be prepared for in 24 hour news is that it doesn't follow timelines it does not follow patterns it doesn't follow uh, you know an expected path so you uh, learn to be prepared for it over a period of time you learn that weekends are not necessarily yours always uh, you learn that stories can break at any time i remember the uh, news of the world investigation into the no balls of the pakistan mm-hmm. players at um, lords it broke very early in the morning because the story was put out by news of the world uh, i think at midnight or something and it came up at a certain time in the morning in india it was first report and you know it was a sunday morning because news of the world was a sunday newspaper and uh, uh, you know that's Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know that's the end of your sunday and the rest of your weekend month yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know i and i i actually uh, really enjoyed that uh, challenge uh, i think uh, you know i remember bob wolma was the other story where uh, we were in the middle of covering a world cup which was at the other side of the world and the hours uh, anyways the hours were anyway crazy but then it suddenly turned into a completely different story but i um, enjoyed that challenge because it put you in an uncomfortable position demanded from you the ability to communicate to your audience to your viewership um the story in uh, the facts as you knew it uh, some sort of analysis of the situation you needed to continuously carry that story forward while you were live um and uh, you needed to ensure that you were not uh, putting out you know unverified uh in information into the public domain or you want uh, just going on here say and rumor some of that happens but uh, sometimes uh, you just have that's the rigor that is expected of you as in an editorial role i mean you know we make uh, i mean live television we make lots of mistakes always have but um, you know i quite enjoyed that challenge of being able to uh, kind of break the story down communicate it and be able to uh, come out on the other side of it saying okay you know we reported this fine mm-hmm. one thing that i've noticed about your work through all these years is how professional you are so with respect to say uh, carrying interviews or following up players or a team's journey 
you're not befriending the players or the teams at any point of time. There's a strict professional relationship. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with journalists hanging out with uh, with the uh, players, but you've said no to it constantly. And at least that's the opinion, uh, that's the view that I have from outside. So a player for you is different from the person that the player is. Yeah. So you are calling a spade a spade. You're criticizing. You're praising solely based on the player's performance and what they do on field. Yeah. So has that been a conscious decision? I think it's one of the uh, sort of dictums of uh, journalism that you know the people that you report on are not your friends. Yeah. I mean, I think if you uh, you know any person, I have a lot of friends. Otherwise, I don't need to make friends with um, with uh, sports people, people who I report on, people who I might be expected to uh, you know be critical of or to uh, do stories on that um, uh, you know don't reflect very well mm-hmm. on them and uh, in an editorial position your reporters come to you mm-hmm. with stories about uh, players and you know then uh, you have a pushback in that front I, I don't think it's very hard to do mm-hmm. I don't you know I uh, I don't really see much value in uh, forming very close friendships with uh, with you know sports people I mean the problem with being a sports reporter and an entertainment reporter those yeah. two things is that you're dealing with high profile people mm-hmm. so you naturally there's an assumption that oh you know if uh, or it's a nice throwaway line ah, yeah, so and so is a friend of mine and so and so is a uh, you know I know that person really well and whatever but uh, you know I mean it's just a hindrance in your work um, uh, you know you've got to be able to when you're writing a piece or you're broadcasting something, you've got to be able to say that, you know, I'm writing it as I see it or I'm calling it as I see it. For the simple reason that if I can't do that, then uh, you're failing in your job as a journalist. I mean, all of these sound like they are very grand things, but they're not really. They're quite simple. Uh, It's a very simple rule to follow, uh, to be, uh, uh, you know, to be objective in assessments to and this means both ways you know sometimes uh, uh, journalists uh, some journalists develop an antipathy to a player and as a result they are unable to see that player in any other light Uh, so uh, it's a that as far as possible. You know, I'm not sure it always. I'm always successful at it, right. but I've tried to do that as far as possible to keep a certain distance uh, from players. Not to say that you don't have a good right. equation with people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm very happy that I have very good equation with several sports people around India. They'll, you know, just if I were to ask them for something, they will probably say yes yeah. and you know whatever. But it doesn't mean that uh, you're not going to report. What the facts are. Yeah, correct. Yeah, because uh, a friend of mine was talking to uh, Hindu Suresh Menon. Yes, uh, the editor. He's a very, uh, very eminent journalist. Love yes. the way he writes. Yes, and he was talking about what happened after the fixing scandal, which had, uh, which had uh, Azharuddin Jadeja yeah. at the center of it. Yeah, a lot of reporters were very close to Azharuddin and Jadeja. So when eventually that scam came out. They didn't know what to do because right. they had these people they trusted immensely, even outside of the professional sphere of work. So he had said that, and that sort of struck a chord with me. Yeah, I mean, uh, Suresh Man is absolutely right. You know, I, I think uh, this sort of uh, uh, this sort of uh, bum chum uh, attitude that uh, you can sometimes uh, develop is uh, dangerous because it doesn't allow you to do your own job 
very well. I mean, at the end of the day, a cricketer's job is to play cricket, and a journalist's job is to look at that cricket and or and the uh, stuff that happens around it, and to report it uh, fairly. And you know, I've noticed over the years also that uh, players also don't mind if you're fair. You know, if you're, uh, um, uh, yeah, sometimes they might take some things badly. But mostly players don't mind if you're fair. If you're ju- if you're just ranting for the sake of uh, doing things, then of course it affects players, and that's uh, uh, that's only normal. They are people. They are human right. beings with families and friends and you know spouses and all of that. So, uh, but otherwise, I don't think players have uh, mm-hmm. taken too much exception to things that we've written and uh, said in the past. Now moving on to what I call the Peter Thiel question. Okay. So Peter Thiel was one of the first uh, investors in Facebook. Mm-hmm. He co-founded PayPal uh, during the dot-com right, yes. boom and then the burst. One of the things that he asks all the employees or potential employees who come for a job to him, uh, he's revealed that question in the book that he wrote called Zero to One, which yeah. talks about what, what makes great companies great. And this question is, and I want you to answer it. Uh, the question he asks is, what important truth you believe in that very few people agree with you on? Hmm. Because this sort of forces you to go against the grain. Because as a society, we are asked to follow a particular thinking pattern. Yeah. But here's a truth that you believe, which very few people agree with you on. Well, I mean, Udayan, see, uh, I... Uh, the things you believe is not necessarily because you know uh, someone else be- agrees right. with you about it or doesn't agree with you. I mean, you need to have a belief system of your own in the uh, in the way you conduct your personal professional uh, lives. So whether that meets with uh, large scale endorsement or not, yeah, I, I don't know. I so you know my my belief system in uh, for instance in uh, in being a journalist is very simple and very very uh, basic it is in just uh, you know an old school middle class line of thinking which is do your job with as much with the sincerity that you can bring to it work hard and because in our line of work just have fun you know because yeah. our line of work uh, is uh, to be honest i mean you know if you look if i look around uh, there's i can't think of too many jobs which are as much fun as this job so um, i don't know i mean it's a tough one for you for me to answer because i haven't really thought about whether there uh, whether people believe in yeah. this uh, uh, theory or not or whether most people don't believe in it or mm-hmm. not but that's uh, largely the simple way that largely the way yeah. i've uh, tried to live my life uh, yeah. You know, whether it's uh, on the professional front or on the personal front, but more so on the professional front, yeah. And that's a very interesting answer because I've asked my friends and the people who have come on the show so far. Yeah. And uh, that's a very different answer uh, compared to the ones that I've got so far. No, I I think, you know, sometimes we uh, try to overcomplicate things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which itself is a belief that you have, right? And you aren't concerned about what's happening around you as such. Yeah. So... Much earlier in the interview, you talked about how you've known what your limitations are mm. at every point of time and how that has been beneficial for you over the years. Yeah. So at what point of time in your career, if you look back now, did that play a big role? So you realized, okay, this is what I can do, whereas the other thing is what I can't do. So let me see what I can do and work with both of them. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know that the answer was in the context of uh, understanding very early that I could not play sport. Right, right. I did not have a lot of talent to play sport, right. uh, and uh, that's uh, that's understandable. Uh, not everybody can be an international sports person. Uh, you know, you look around, so many players, so many people in India play so much sport. Very few of them make the cut and and become international sports people. So. Um, yeah i mean you know i think uh, every person in or in every line of work will have to understand the limitations that they start with we can't be gifted at everything uh, and uh, you know so i mean I, I for instance i can't sing i can't dance i can't <laughs> i can't uh, uh, you know write poetry and uh, i i don't understand management concepts but i uh, you know i think i have a, a, a feel for cricket reporting or, right. or for uh, uh, television journalism if for hmm. want of a better word mm-hmm. so uh, that that um, uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I don't know if uh, there was. Uh, I did. I, I never really sat down and identified clear, right? Uh, you know, limitations that I, I uh, you know, I read some of the writing on Crick Info, for instance, mm-hmm. writing by someone like Sharda Okra or uh, Siddharth Monga, Jared Kimber, all of the writers, Gideon A, all mm-hmm. of these writers, or uh, if I read Roy Bridgenath, uh, you know, people like this. Uh, and I know for a fact that I'll never be able to write like this. You know, these are uh, exceptional writers with exceptional ability. So you understand that very quickly that, oh, you know, okay, mm. you know, I'm never going to be able to write like this. Because I know I could, I read my own stuff and I read their stuff and I understand very clearly there's a big difference in the quality that uh, one is reading. So those are limitations if you like. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. so you're talking about Crick Info here and that yeah. came after the scene in IBN. That's right. And you've spoken about how you wanted, you, you thought the market and the audience was moving to a position where they wanted to consume stuff on demand. Mm-hmm. Whereas for a television uh, show or for a television uh, news channel, stuff is happening in time slots. Yeah. Whereas, say with a website, you can access it at any point of time. Even at 1.30 at night, you want to know what Gaurav Kadara was talking about with uh, Ajit Agarkar, you will have access That's to it. Right, yeah. So apart from it, what, what, what prompted you to join Crick Info? Um, well, I mean, uh, you know, I had been at CNN IBN for about eight years, actually a little more than eight years. I, from the inception to 2013, November, when I resigned, so that was more than eight years, 2005. So uh, I think in every job you reach a point where, uh, you know, there is a sameness to it. I was, um, there is a sameness, there's also... Uh, I think you feel yourself that there's a sense of lethargy and complacency coming in. There was no reason really for me to quit at CNN IBN. I had to change cities as well, which was a challenge. I had a young family, all that. But I was reaching that point uh, where I want. I felt that I wanted to change myself and that wouldn't have happened by joining another news channel. Because if you join another news channel, the profile and the largely the demands of the job would remain the same. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that I've known Sambit Bal, who's the editor, who's my boss here, for many, many years, uh, for, you know, uh, about 15, 20 years now. And uh, we had had a previous conversation also about uh, maybe a role here, which hadn't worked out. But um, uh, I looked when at... When was this? Which year? Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, maybe, maybe another year before that, 2011-12, I can't remember. It was a very casual conversation. Right. But finally, uh, you know... Uh, Sambit wanted to uh, look at doing 
more video on uh, quick info and uh, look at uh, uh, you know while keeping the uh, core and the uh, uh, sort of strengths of quick info in place but do sort of more analysis video look at more programming there was a greater uh, uh, receptivity to video on digital mm. and so uh, you know uh, so we had another conversation and it seemed like something that I would uh, you know would challenge me in a different way because uh, television is like you you know I think everybody understands television is a different animal yeah. 24 hour news is a different animal and so I, um, uh, I was quite happy to take this up, uh, but it's nearly five years ago now. Yeah. But yeah, but I was quite happy to take this up because I wanted to explore uh, uh, in my area. Um, and the other thing is the attraction of the platform. You have to remember that this is yeah. a, uh, this is a not a. Uh, not any, know, it's not yeah. just any place. Yeah. I mean, uh, Quick Info has a very special place in the hearts of people. It is offers your work will get noticed for good or for bad. Mm. Um, and so I, uh, and I was also to a certain extent uh, getting a bit bogged down by a lot of administrative work at CNN. Right. I, mean, I had a team and handling people and all that. So I felt like it was something that I needed to break out mm. from. So yeah, yeah. why not? I, you know, you don't overthink it, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So over the course of your tryst with journalism, yeah, you have interviewed a lot of big names, yes, and you've been present at some of the biggest sporting events. That's right. So I I want to know what kind of a process you go through. Let's say before interviewing someone like Sir Viv Richards, well, that's that's as big as it can get, right? If you're interviewing yeah. Sachin Tendulkar, Viv Richards, like what process do you go through? How do you prepare for it? Um, well, obviously, uh, you know, when you go into an interview with any anyone, I mean, whether it's uh, Sachin Tendulkar or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, a young cricketer mm. who's just coming up uh, through the ranks, uh, whether it's Washington Sundar, the, uh, the idea is that, you know, obviously you go into that interview uh, with a clear idea of what you want to ask and you need a bit of research and background and understanding of uh, what you want to uh, talk to them about. Um, but with the big name interviews, uh, I think, uh, you know, you're, uh, uh, you've got to be able to uh, treat them and look at them as people. Uh, you know, you can't be intimidated by the idea that, oh, listen, this is Sachin Tendulkar. I hope I don't offend him. Oh, listen, this is Viv Richards. I can't ask him this. Uh, so uh, I think that, uh, you know, you uh, learn to do that. For the first time, when I uh, I remember when the first time I interviewed uh, uh, Sachin, for instance, was in Zimbabwe in 2001, and you know it felt like I was only a couple of years into journalism, and it felt like oh, this is Sachin Tendulkar, you know, or uh, when I met Boris Becker for the mm -hmm. first time when I interviewed him, or, or Carl Lewis, it felt like oh, these are you know iconic figures from my youth, but you know no one is interested in who you were your icons when you were younger. They are interested yeah. in what they are telling you yeah. at that time. So you try and make sure that you follow the basics of what you are asking them. So you know you're you're well researched, you're organized, you ask your questions clearly. You make sure that um, if uh, you uh, go through some the major news points and all of that. And also remember that a lot of people don't understand this. I get a uh, feedback several times. Oh, why didn't you ask this? Or why did you ask that? Or why did you? Mm. Uh, you know, is that always with these big ticket player interviews, 
there is a t- restriction on time uh, yeah. you know you're only you only have a short window and uh, when you've got that uh, issue then you've uh, got to try and make the most of it yeah. and a few things will get left out it's almost inevitable yeah. so uh, you know you just uh, you just prepare for that yeah and talking about preparing and just generally how you should be with uh, say how how you should prepare for big interviews or prepare for stories if someone is starting off right now and this will probably bring a lot of value to those who are listening again what advice would you give them given all your experience now if say someone wants to cover cricket or any other sport what would you tell them see um there like we touched on i mean preparation is obviously very yeah. important i, I think uh, a basic curiosity about your line of uh, work is hugely important i don't really think this is cricket specific uh you know you've got to in general be curious about uh the area of uh, journalism that you are uh, getting into and that means that you don't only have to ask questions but you also have to ask the right questions based on the right information so you've got to dig it up whether it's from primary sources such as you talking to people yourself and getting quotes and getting background information getting uh, uh, you know knowledge that way or whether it's by reading about things so you know if i have to interview vakar unis about reverse swing let's say for instance about the concept of reverse swing i should spend some time before mm-hmm. that interview in understanding it myself so that when he starts to get all technical on me i can mm. try and break it down i can try and explain to the viewer mm. that this is what vakar is trying to say this is just by way of uh, example so um, uh, you know uh, the 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 um, there's level many examples of this we did a long series on quick info uh, a, a series on quick info uh, called talking cricket which were long uh, long form interviews just like yeah this one with more interesting subjects yeah uh, but uh, the one uh, uh, so we did several with uh, we did so you're not with, so you're not saying that you are interesting enough <laughs> <laughs> not as as much as those guys but yeah. one of the guys we interviewed was mahila jaiwal yeah. one we did uh, a long interview with darrel kalanan as well about and they were all on very tricky issues yeah. you know about apartheid in south africa or uh, about uh, uh, mahila jaiwal was about captaincy yeah. and things like that so you know you need to be sure that you're asking uh, you you know what you're asking so that the subject is interested in talking to you yeah. if he switches off or loses interest um you know i uh, uh, there's one particular moment which i remember quite well tendulkar's 20 years com- when he right. completed his 20th year as a international cricketer he did a bunch of series of interviews no exclusives or anything so in my interview i remember asking him um if on the first day as a test cricketer when he was 15 years old uh, when he walked out and he faced his first couple of deliveries he f- uh, felt what all of us mortals do which is stage fright did you feel like you did not belong here you know he has this kind of boy wonder scores runs everywhere every time he bats for whichever cricket at first class cricket and here he is in pakistan playing a test match at 16 years old and he said yes very much so i did not believe that i was uh meant to be uh, playing cricket uh, i mean meant to be i was ready for that yeah. stage of cricket something but i immediately remember that because i thought oh you know here's this man that you were that you think is the greatest uh, batsman of 
Miss Ella and is always very sure and confident and secure about things that he does. Mm-hmm. But remember, there was a time when he walked out to bed and he felt that he did not belong. Yeah. It's a great life lesson, isn't it? Yeah. Like even the best get yeah. scared, they yeah. get nervous. Yeah. And uh, start out, don't necessarily start out believing that they are in the right line of work. Even Tendulkar did at that moment that mm-hmm. uh, test cricket was for him. Yeah. Sort of highlights the fact that the yeah. greatest always do things before they are yes, ready. That's right. right. So, talking and bringing back your discussion with the women's team yes, uh, before they went for the World Cup. Yeah. Now, we are at a very critical juncture, I believe, in women's cricket. Yeah. Uh, so, what happened in 1983 for the men's team? Because they won the World Cup, came back, and suddenly cricket was a big sport. They had a lot more following. More importantly, they had the self-belief to do well after that. Mm. Now, 35 years later, something similar has happened, but with the women's team. So, how do you think this can be nurtured more? Because we have seen, so in the IPL for that matter, we don't have a women's version of the IPL. Whereas the BBL and even the league in the UK, they are much younger. But they already have rolled out female women's versions. Yeah, I think uh, there are a few issues to understand. Uh, Mithali Raj touched on it also recently yeah. where I think she makes the point and it's an important one that there perhaps isn't a big enough critical mass of players for India to have a women's IPL mm. right immediately. Mm. Because uh, fine, you can start an IPL but if the audience is not seeing a very high quality uh, sporting product, mm. the audience is there is a danger that the audience will switch off. Now, I think we have to understand the reason why that 50 why that world cup was quite successful mm. from the, it was uh, because uh, you felt that uh, the women's game had taken a leap yeah. forward in terms of what it offered the as quality. a as a uh, quality product yeah. now that means that you know if you're asking a television audience to watch a game for 7 hours in that case 50 over world cup or even a 20 over game it will not watch so it can indulge you so that it feels like oh it's the right thing to do I must support women's cricket so I'll watch the Mm -hmm. match for 3 hours the reason why you watch Serena and Venus play or uh, why you watch women's tennis or women's golf or uh, or the the NBA I think that's quite popular I'm not a big follow myself but all of that is because that uh, or women's uh, swimming at the Olympics is because they offer a very high quality sporting spectacle and the women's uh, game started to offer that at the World Cup so I think you've got to take small steps forward Um, so if the uh, the IPL has to be introduced you have to be sure that there are 80 90 players around India who are, um, you know, of that uh, quality. And I don't think that is the case right now. If you see the results of the India team mm-hmm. that had lost to Australia in the uh, warm-up matches, they were getting beaten by huge margins, which means that the... There are 15, the, the next 15. There, there, there isn't a, a, a deep enough pool. It's a start right yeah. now. They've, the contracts have improved. And, and mm-hmm. you know, there's been a substantial difference right. in the last two years in comparison to the previous 20. I spoke to uh, Elise Perry yesterday yeah. and the first thing she said about this was she said uh, it almost feels like a second career for us right now yeah. the last couple of years. That's a good thing. I think um, um, I don't think we should be impatient with women's cricket. It will take a while mm-hmm. um, and after that uh, I'm pretty sure that it um, th- they'll build on these uh, they'll build on this, this success. So, so do you think say with the women's BBL it's more of a success there or the potential of it to become a success is more in Australia because of the sporting culture that they have? 
and how they look at cricketers essentially maybe may, may, maybe that's uh, that's the case and also you know uh, i think in the wbbl there have been there's been a very strong marketing push there's mm-hmm. also been a alignment with the men's teams there's also been some very good organization around it the television coverage has been quite good which are things that can be ensured in india as well i know uh, that's the case but obviously you need uh, uh, all the overseas players to come in uh, and uh, play uh, in india you need to have um, so i think the wbbl is a, a sign that if done well these uh, leagues can uh, the women's cricket uh, leagues can work yeah. so that's a uh, but that's a, 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 a one off example right. in one uh, country in the world where uh, there is a culture to go out and watch sport and consume it mm-hmm. it's not so much in india yeah like for example today there was a match happening in mumbai itself now think and, of it this yeah. way i mean you know some of these things are opportunities missed you wonder about the organization yeah. why is this match happening on a weekday at 10 am in yeah. mumbai uh, at cci which is a yeah. hard place to get to yeah. for anyone uh, why is it not happening at 6 o'clock in the evening under lights especially why because it's a t20 game as well it's right? a t20 yeah. game why is it not happening at that time if you know women's cricket is such a priority mm-hmm. project why is it, why are these uh, why are these matches being played at a god for second time so you know these are the things that uh, will have to be addre- addressed before uh, we get a uh, you know we get like a swarm of following for women's cricket it's built there's definitely more than before these uh, women are all stars now uh, but uh, it's um, i don't think we should jump the gun got it so moving on to an issue that has plagued indian cricket for the past Two two and a half years, mm-hmm. the Lodha Committee. Right. So now I think we are at a very tricky stage because amongst the uh, committee of administrators, you've got uh, two people who have left. The third one, Vinod Rai, is turning seventy yeah. in May. Right. And you've got the Lodha reforms, which say no one above seventy can be a part of the administrative setup of the BCCI. So by the way things have progressed. All, all of us, I think, can bet all our wealth on it that it won't be solved before me. Yeah. So, if May comes, if it's not solved, then you have got Mr. I turning seventy. That makes him not eligible to be a part of the administrative setup. And a couple of people have spoken to about this. They have talked about how, when the committee was selected, several big Indian names, Indian players, weren't considered for it because they were turning seventy very soon. Right. So the argument of how they know that I will continue even after his seventy is slightly it, it doesn't have that logic that much logical strength in it. Yeah. So given all of this and given how uh, the entire uh, situation has panned out, what do you think is the best way now for the reforms to be implemented? Because we are at a stalemate. Because the court is telling BCCI to do some things, yeah. they're saying we won't do it. I uh, I think that the ball is very very firmly in the court of the Supreme Court now. Uh, you know they uh, they essentially what the, the committee of administrators the job was to make sure that they implemented the reforms that had been now accepted by the Supreme Court. That's essentially what it was that they had to court each of the state associations had to. Uh, come on board right. with the with the reforms and the BCCI constitution had to be changed and uh, the uh, few further administration of the BCCI was to be done as per the norms that were uh, given by the Loda committee. So now that that hasn't 
successfully happened and the transition ha hasn't happened then i think the supreme court has to uh, uh, has to take it upon itself now to either uh, just notify whatever that uh, legal process is mm -hmm. and say that listen the constitution is now in place and it will be a violation of the laws of the land to not follow this uh, constitution uh, or actually add more muscle to the COA. Now since Ram Goha left and Vinod Lema left, the, the, they have just functioned as a two-member yeah. uh, body and uh, uh, obviously they are at uh, loggerheads yeah. with uh, the old guard of the BCCI. So the stalemate is absolutely the right word. But I think it will be upon the upon the Supreme Court to essentially say now you've stalled enough, enough, stalled enough, and uh, now this is uh, the uh, law of the land. You better go ahead and implement it. Uh, I don't uh, think that there are resistance from the old guard from the VCCI will stop anytime soon. Yeah, it will not happen because uh, you know these are entrenched positions. These are people who have been in these power, this position of power for a very long time. So I don't see how that uh, resistance will stop till they are absolutely, uh, you know, told in no clear, uh, in un no uncertain terms that time's up. And to being very honest, uh, you don't see a resolution in the next six, seven months. It uh, doesn't seem like it. I thought that a judgment is a resolution. Yeah. You know that. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Uh, it's the bottom, uh, you know, it's a... Uh, I remember writing about this as uh, well a, a few months back where, you know, the argument was that can you, uh, uh, you know, can you have a situation in which the aggrieved, the party that has been punished in a sense has been given out yeah. a, a, a sentence then decides to uh, uh, make up its own rules about how that sentence is implemented. Yeah. So, but, you know, it's a very unique situation. A lot of the legal minds that one speaks to when we do these mm -hmm. Uh, interactions they're completely flummoxed as to how you know this has carried on for as long as it has but you know in India many things happen which you sometimes can't quite understand yeah and I think come May BCCI is old guard they'll start raising questions as to why a person about 70 <laughs> is in the committee of might, might, might well happen yeah. might well happen do you feel there are too many changes and a lot of tinkering happening in test matches because you have okay you have the day night match you have the ping ball match which has been a success so far, every time we have played a day-night yeah. test match. Yeah. It hasn't been implemented across all nations, but in the next couple of years, two and a half years, we will see at least one test match being hosted by every test playing That's nation. Fine. But let's say now something like the four-day game, uh, or there have been theories and ideas as to how the test match will be a four-day affair, but at the end of every day, you have to declare your innings. So that's how you complete the four innings. Yeah. So do you feel there's a lot of tinkering? Because you have you have something here that is working for you, which is the day-night test match. From the evidence that we have so far, it's limited, but at the same time it's working. So my theory my view is that this is not an exact science. You will not definite you will not give a de definitive answer. The very fact that you are constantly looking for answers, constantly looking for tinkering, is that there is a problem that has been identified with this format. That uh, uh, and that problem is not necessarily in the minds of people such as us who are you know sort of followers of test match yeah. cricket who enjoy watching it who uh, are invested. We we'll watch it watch even it. if it starts at four a.m. in yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. So uh, that uh, that is uh, you know that's the wrong way to look at it. The problem 
uh, is uh, in the uh, feedback that broadcasters are getting from their commercial partners now the, uh, unless there are broadcasters involved test match cricket uh, no for no sport, modern day sport is viable right. so now those broadcasters are sending the message down the line to boards that our commercial partners are not as interested in uh, test match cricket and as a result um, they are veering more towards these leagues or whatever yeah. it might be now if that is the message from the broadcasters then uh, uh, cricket boards that are responsible for uh, running uh, cricket individually in their countries will have to act, uh, look at uh, what they can do to preserve the game because it is hugely important to preserve test cricket it is uh, the uh, you know it is a very unique form of the game so as a result uh, to just uh, to lose it completely uh, in this wave would be a uh, would be a travesty you don't want that to happen so i think they've got to find uh, you know i i i'm trying to remember the exact phrase uh, i think it was gideon a who said this no what is it that does uh, cricket exist to make money or mm-hmm. does cricket make money in order to exist uh, what is the role of uh, uh, you know the game now uh, the administrators of the game so i think that i don't have a problem with experimenting with a four day test match uh, with the idea that maybe there will be fewer breaks in the middle with the idea that maybe it is uh, played in a day and night uh, format mm. in some cases in some cases where it's unviable mm. so you try and play 100 overs in the day you try and uh, mm. you know you try and uh, structure it that way but whether that will make too much of a difference four days five right. days is is a, a separate argument altogether i i you know i uh, haven't really given a lot of thought to what is the format that will work right uh, in test cricket but i think that uh, you can't close your mind down and say we will not experiment this mm. is the purest form of the game right it must not be tinkered with uh, because if you go down that right. route then you might suddenly come up in a few years time where broadcasters say fine keep playing test cricket i'm just not interested in buying it yeah. and when that happens then you've got a real problem yeah. and i think uh, tinkering in many ways has been embroidered with the sport not in the test format but with other formats because yeah. all other formats if you notice have changed over the past 30 of course, years i mean you please look at the first three world cups were over 60 mm. overs uh, so you know uh, how is that uh, when you look at records for instance you know you compare records uh, the first few uh, there were no power plays at yeah. the time there were no field restrictions but then there were 60 overs mm-hmm. so we which is this 180 or was made in a yeah. 60 over game uh, you know so how is that the same as rohit sharma's 264 yeah. which was made in a 50 over game right so uh, these things uh, are obviously you know there have been four day test matches played it isn't yeah. like they haven't been played in the past there were four day test matches uh there has been timeless tests played there yeah. have been six day tests played uh there used to be a time when there were rest days in between right. test matches so can you imagine a scenario in this day and age to have a rest day in between a right. test match it would be ridiculous yeah. so uh, you know uh, you have to move uh, you have to understand and adapt to the times while preserving this uh, sort of this uh, this product And I think it's uh, like if you think about this a little more, uh, this is the right time to say introduce a four-day test match because the scoring rate has gone up. You're seeing uh, batsmen and even bowlers uh, playing more aggressive cricket over and over again. So that may again hint the broadcasters that okay, if they are playing aggressive cricket, we won't have say a ten-four three-day 
there was yeah so uh, so you know if there is a refusal to understand that this is not viable sport in uh, the modern day landscape then you know we are just being foolish mm-hmm. now a couple of questions here on the indian batting lineup especially okay uh, so we've seen a lot of people asking for dhoni's removal from the team but if you sort of glance at his numbers they aren't as great as what they were say 5 years back yeah but he's still a force to reckon with in many ways given the 2019 world cup that is now coming up uh, it's in a way clear that dhoni is there to stay because if he wanted to not play the world cup considering the kind of person dhoni is he would have retired probably a year back so that the next batsman the next wicket keeper could have been groomed there's been a reduction in his strike rate though in the past 3 4 years yeah. so do you think there's a different role for dhoni now in the team because we we keep on seeing dhoni come in later in the innings whereas it's obvious for a viewer to realize that okay he's he needs 5 6 overs maybe even 10 overs to actually get a, get the strike rotating as he wants mm. to get the big hits going so do you think there's a case for him to bat higher up the order say at 4 or 5 5 most probably because the world cup is in england yeah that would seem the most logical uh, thing to do because you know i think that if they had to make a decision about whether he should be part of the one day team or not that decision needed to have been made a year right. ago now that with a year to go for the world cup it's very clear that he is the man mm. for the um, team in the world cup now you have to also remember that dhoni uh, brings not just uh, his batting but also yeah. his wicket keeping which kind is tactical actually very, very high and yeah. also see uh, i just covering the series in south africa recently it was very noticeable mm. how uh, basically dhoni is still kind of the captain of the one day team in terms of the actual uh, tactics on the field in the way that he talks to the bowlers mm. in the way that he sets the field i mean you often see virat is fielding on the fence because mm. he has a great throwing arm so yeah. he will field their team so obviously his role is not just as a batsman but it's an important role as a batsman mm. because uh, besides the top 3 india sometimes mm, yeah. are a little yeah. um, concerned about that so i think uh, you know obviously uh, he has to bat within the top 4 or 5 i mean at 4 or 5 uh because now with hardik pandya there he is the right guy to finish and mm-hmm. kedar jadav as well because uh, they play him so that's the uh, only place that uh, logically he can bat at he has the experience of playing a lot of cricket in england so i think they will uh, he's a sensible guy yeah. he's a very very yeah. uh, uh, you know understands uh, his role and his position in the team so i think that the bigger question with him is uh, his t20 future i just don't see how he fits into india's t20 playing 11 i've always thought that he should have been moved on a while back from the t20 team but maybe the same logic applies you know right. sets the fields and um is tactically very important to kohli who feels in the deep again and allows him to mm-hmm. do his thing so right and we've crossed an hour so i'm going to ask you a couple of last questions okay Uh, now again over the years you've had some excellent memories right. and i was uh, i looked at a post on facebook mm. where so recently when you moved to mumbai 
you found a few items in your house when you were packing. Yeah, yeah. 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 So one was a letter that you got from KCA, KSCA, KSCA yes. uh, which was signed by Mr. Anil Kumble, yeah. where he was thanking you to. Uh, for being a part of the ceremony, for hosting the ceremony, yes. that uh, gave a felicitation to, to Rahul Dravid. Yes. Then there was also a time when you, I think, were there at a book launch of a friend's. Yes. And MSD, Mahindra Singh Dhoni was present there. That's and right. uh, you, you spoke about how he opened up in that That's book right. launch. Yeah, yeah. So if I were to, I, I know it's going to be difficult, but if I were to ask you, say, pick a couple of uh, memories that have stuck with you. Um, so... I mean, most of the memories that stick with you are the things you see live as yeah. watching sport. I mean, because, you know, while these are uh, wonderful moments, I mean, to be asked, see, to be asked to host uh, a event where the KSCA was, KSCA at the time where its president was Anil Kumle yeah. and its secretary was Javagal Srinath and they were hosting a, a, a tribute to Rahul Dravid who had just retired. Just to be asked to do that, uh, you know, to uh, was a, I mean, uh, I didn't have, I was over the moon. I was very happy <laughs> because Anil Kumble is the cricketer I admire more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the sports person I admire more than anyone else. He's a great hero of mine. I still struggle to, uh, you know, I have very good conversations with him, but I still find it a little intimidating in his presence. Um so that was very nice. It was a great moment. Uh, the Dhoni book launch was a great... Today is, in fact, five years to that wow. day because I, uh, okay. the uh, guy whose book it was, yeah. Vimal, he shared it on uh, Facebook. Wow. Okay. But, you know, your best memories are always watching. Uh, yeah. Being at the ground to watch some incredible things. I mean, this, the la- latest one of watching Virat Kohli bat in South Africa, phenomenal. Uh, to be able to watch um, Federer and Nadal yeah. play that final in 2017... Probably the top memory of my uh, sporting <laughs> sort of uh, mm-hmm. my life around sport so far. To watch Bolt win the gold medal, yeah. 100, 200, 4 and 200 at Rio. Uh, that was very special. Sindhu's performances, yeah. all of Rio was very special because I was a reporter yeah. and I was on the ground by myself writing a lot, all of that. That was very good. Um, watching India win in Perth in yeah. 2008, you know, after all the things that had happened. Uh, I saw Tendulkar's uh, 100 against Australia in 98 uh, in Chennai. Uh, where, mm. uh, so those sorts of, uh, I mean, many, many. That was early in your career as well. Many, many yeah. things. Yeah, so, you know, some wonderful uh, memories. But yeah, you always cherish the ones where you've seen someone play live. Something happened live in front of your eyes. Uh, and you felt like, you know, in a stadium, mm. you feel like you're part of the moment. Although you are, uh, you have to divorce <laughs> yourself from it and mm-hmm. look at it critically. But yeah. Yeah. And just talking about Federer now, it's been a resurgence that no one would have seen coming yeah. at any point of time. Yeah. There are various uh, sort of guesses, estimates to make as to what's causing this, what's the reason behind this resurgence. But for all these years, when he was on the top of his game and when he was holding the number one ranking within times like you'd win, say, uh, a, a game of cards playing with your family... His top priority for all these years was to win slams, was to be the best tennis player he can be. But in the past three, four years, uh, especially in the past couple of years after he's become this Federer that now we uh, refer to when we talk about Federer, his priority might have changed because he's a family now. Mm. So even though he loves playing tennis, even if if he wants to win a tennis game, that is not the end of the world for him at any point of time. Do you think that has sort of... Because you see, when you see Federer today, 
he's more open he's more expressive on the field he's always uh, I, w- i would imagine so although you know they're very hard to put yourself in the shoes right. of sports people i mean i try not to do that so much because it's very hard because you know the life that they choose to live is very different from our everyday life mm-hmm. uh the uh you know what the the rigor and the work that goes into being a top level athlete is very different to you know what we experience on a day to day basis so it's very hard to say but it seems like that you yeah. know he's uh, um he also says himself that he's like a part time uh, tennis player yeah. now fun part time uh, does everything part time mm. now so uh, but uh, you know this is the reason why uh, people are in invested in sport mm. uh you know whoever thought at the start of 2017 that the guy would win three of the next five grand slam tournaments whoever thought it just didn't seem possible he had a knee injury he was 36 he hadn't won a slam for four years all of these uh, things conventionally makes you think oh you know there's no chance he's finished he's a great player but he's done but you know tendulkar same 2005 yeah. 6 everybody gave up on him after that yeah, so tendulkar and all yeah, of that yeah. but you know these guys are made of a special soil i guess yeah. you know and in the same way now tiger woods yeah. where you're kind yeah. of thinking oh you know finished 42 years old like me yeah. and uh, you know now yeah. uh, revival so yeah. that's the reason why we uh, are invested in sport as journalists and fans and followers mm-hmm. it's because of these sorts of things that come up suddenly and you know you say wow look at how that guy did that i mean i seriously it just was a spine tingling thing for me to be in the Mm. and on the court on the i mean uh, to watch that federer nadal final it was just in- unbelievable that you know <laughs> you're in 2017 yeah these two guys are playing against each other and you're right there watching it i mean it was just unreal you might have been calculating earlier in your career and if i get a chance to go to the open maybe now i can watch yeah. federer win and now you go into the 17 yeah which is where his resurgence started that's right yeah it suddenly yeah. became a dream while watching it was it was it was it was a, a unforgettable night and i watched it with sambit uh, wow okay. so we have a common uh, even he loves yeah, tennis he's a big tennis yeah. tennis freak yeah what's up tennis man big I'm tennis he's a much bigger federer fan than i am mm mm-hmm. yeah yeah now the final question yes. of this interview what's if i were to put you on the spot and ask you you to, haven't so far in all these questions you think i would you on the spot <laughs> <laughs> ask you to pick the defining moment of your career so far mm. where maybe you found a strength that you didn't think you had in the first place or you took a gamble or what it what seemed at that time was a gamble um in terms of career choices could be anything uh i would answer it if i felt that there was one i mean i just uh, feel that you know just uh, the uh, um the 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 standout bit about uh, this uh, line of work is that it uh, constantly puts you in a situ- in uh, close to situations where you see the best of what a human being can produce uh, so you know that is the most uh, sort of rewarding part of this uh, line of work you know because i know that people who work in uh, uh, 
uh, in political political reporting and uh, in entertainment reporting as well they're not you know, on film sets they don't really watch an actor's craft mm. fully uh so they are under, they end up reporting on it from a second hand experience of viewing game uh, viewing things and all of that or they don't ever see them in rehearsals so the things that i enjoy are you know things like being able to see net sessions yeah. being able to see practice you know like stand and just watch jokovic practice uh you know things like that the opportunity to be in those situations mm-hmm. and not having to pay for yeah. it uh you know not getting paid for it getting paid for it that's it i won't call anything a defining moment but i think it was very important for me to have made the decision to move to cnn ipn at the time that i did because i was not 30 yet and i was put in a high pressure job uh in um, and uh, in a leadership position in which i could so easily have failed because uh, there was no prior experience of being in those uh, in that scenario Uh, so that decision was very helpful because i think it sort of gave me the confidence to say okay right you know i can uh, do these things and i can uh, you know i can uh, do sports programming which is watchable and people uh, see it and that allows you to then build on that and do other things as you go forward mm-hmm. but yeah i mean it's not really putting me on the spot but i don't See anything as a defining moment, so much, so much. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think as journalists, we don't really have. We have we are uh, sort of on the sidelines. You know, we are observers and watchers of things. You're never the center. You chronicle that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you're never the kind of main story anyway. You know. If like you are, then you're doing your job. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the, the job rock. So yeah. So that's why you know I. I not used to interviews of this kind. I mean, you know, you're used to asking the questions, not answering them. So yeah. Yeah, I think that brings us to the end of this conversation. Good or there, I had a wonderful time. And and glad, glad you uh, made the effort and came. Thank you so much. It was an honor, sir. Thank okay, you, so thank much. you, thank you, then. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Gaurav Kalra. I had so much fun while interviewing him, and I hope you did while listening as well. If you like this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe, as that will help this episode reach more people. You can find the show notes of this episode on my website which is www.udayanadhye.com. You can also drop me a line on my Twitter or my Instagram page. The handles for both are udayanadhye that is udayanadhye. That's it for this particular episode. I hope to see you very soon. Till then, please take care. Thank you. Thank you.